Thank you, Daniel. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Trust you're doing well. We are going to be in Isaiah 6, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 6, uh, just a couple of things, reminders. One is um, the uh, chili cook-off coming up at the end of the month. I mentioned that um, recently. Don't forget to register if you're going to bring a dessert or chili. Uh, that's the last Sunday of the month, and then plan on hanging out with us afterwards for a big meal. Um, but also want to remind you that this coming Saturday is our fall work day, and this one we're hoping is bigger than, than our normal um, fall work days. All hands on deck, everybody is invited. There's actually enough um, different roles and jobs for everybody to be involved, uh, from the oldest to the youngest. And then um, after we work for a few hours, we're going to end our work together by uh, sharing a meal, lunch. So come not only prepared to help um, get the campus cleaned up and address some things that need to be um, address, but also prepare to just share a meal with, uh, with the church. That's this Saturday. Be sure you register online, though, so that we know you're coming. So you can do that on the app, or you can go on our website and register for the, uh, the cleanup, fall cleanup. All right, so uh, Isaiah 6 is where we're going to be. We're starting a new series today, and uh, today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. Uh, normally, we have a primary text that we go to, and we sit in for all of our time together. Um, today, we're actually going to cover a lot of ground. We will get to Isaiah 6 in just a minute, um, but we're starting a new series entitled Worship Is, and for lack of better ideas, that's what we came up with, um, but I think it captures the intent of the series, which is to do two things. One, to define worship. What do we mean when we call something worship? And then number two, how do I get there? Like, how do I get my heart, myself, ready to worship, especially when I'm not feeling it, or I don't want to do it, I don't know how to do it. So we're going to spend time together in a series looking at this definition of worship and seeing how worship actually can take place in all of life. We use that word a lot in places like this in church. We call this a worship service, and we've invited you together with us in worship, and we're singing worship songs, and we talked earlier about how giving is part of our worship and our singing is worship and our praying is worship and so what in the world do we mean when we say the word worship well in the bible the word that's used in the greek language uh, is the word proskuneo um, which you don't really need to remember that word just letting you know that i know it and that's how smart i am um, but here's here's the point this word actually has a specific meaning okay and here's what the word means it means to fall down before someone or something um, as an expression of profound reverence and adoration. A sense of like respect and even fear and reverence, but also affection, love, adoration. And there's this other word, it's the English word, um, that you say it this way, it's obeisance, and I don't use that word. I had to go look it up. What does obeisance mean? This captures this essence of worship. It's the movement of the body expressing something deep within, okay? So it's so important when we think about worship, it's not just what you're doing with your mouth or your hands or your body. It includes something that's going on on the inside. And actually, it's, it's an alignment or a, a harmony, if you will, between the posture of my heart and the posture of my body. 
that I'm saying something or I'm doing something outwardly that conveys reverence and adoration towards God, but I do that as a reflection of a posture of my heart inwardly. Isaiah, in Isaiah 29, says this. The Lord is talking about the nation of Israel and he's describing their worship. He says this, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Then he's going to go on and say, Because of that, I'm going to do something new and wonderful amongst them. But this description of of what they're doing helps us understand what worship is. They were going through the motions. On the outside, the nation of Israel, they they looked like faithful worshipers. They were showing up at the right place, at the right time, doing the right things. But as God was observing their worship, he said, hey, 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 Your, your worship is just something you're doing on the outside. You're trying to honor me with your mouth and and with your lips, but I can see your heart. Your heart is a long ways away. Your heart is far from me. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength there should be a harmony or an integration between what i'm feeling and what i'm thinking and what's coming out of my body my actions my words worship happens when our adoration and our profound reverence towards god aligns with right thoughts about god and we express it in our obedient actions towards God. It's not enough for me to say, well, I feel it on the inside. We're good. No, God calls us to action. He calls us to obedience. It's not enough to say, well, I've got right thoughts about God, like I've read it all, and I've memorized it all, and I know it all, while my heart is far from Him. That's not enough. So it's not enough just to go through the motions. It's not enough just to have the right thoughts. It's not enough just to have the right feelings. It's when all three of these things align. They integrate together. That's when worship happens. I'm going to show you a a slide here that will just be kind of a reference point as we think about how God interacts with his people in the Bible and where obedience and worship come from. So there's this pattern we see in the scriptures where you have a human being, one of God's creation, in some kind of deep need. It could be somebody in need of salvation, or it could be David in need of protection because his enemies are chasing him. And God meets that person with his presence, and out of his presence, out of this interaction, flows this gratitude and this love that evoke worship and obedience. We're going to look at a few of these together. Well, the problem with that is that it doesn't always flow in a linear equation like this, right? And so actually a better way of thinking about this is to see God's presence outside of our need and our circumstance, bigger than we are. 
It goes before us and afterwards. And oftentimes, we don't even know what we need until we encounter the presence of God. So it's not that I figure out what I need, and then I go looking for the presence of God and go, here's what I need, and then he meets me. As I'm walking through life, God gives me his presence. He goes before me and after me. He surrounds me. And when I encounter his presence, my true needs come to the surface. And out of that, we meet this God who is kind and patient and loving. He meets us in our deepest need, and from there flows gratitude and love and worship and obedience. Now, I want to talk for a minute about the dangers of just sitting in one part of this. So if we go to this far side over here, this, uh, this call to worship and obedience. I don't feel like it. We'll do it anyway. Just go through the motions and maybe your heart will follow this fake it until you make it perspective. If all we do is camp out over here and we call people to worship and obedience and miss the heart, what we'll end up with is legalism. You'll look good on the outside as long as you can keep it up. You'll look great on the outside. Jesus calls these people whitewashed tombs. Man, you look good on the outside, but you are dead on the inside. However, there's a danger on the other end as well. If all we do is set up camp in our neediness, and God shows up and gives us his presence, and we don't let our hearts flow out of that into gratitude and love and worship and obedience, and we just camp out over here, ringing the pity party bell, inviting people, right, to come celebrate our deep sorrow, our deep needs, and what we'll end up with is this world that revolves around us. And all we're aware of is what we need. And even after God has shown up and met us in our needs, we just camp out here. And so there's a danger from, from one end to the other. And if we end up over here, what you end up in is like antinomianism. There's no command. There's no obedience. There's no call to worship. I'm just going to sit here, feel my feelings, and camp out in my pity. However, if I go to the other end, and we do this all the time in church, just worship, just obey, just worship, just obey, and completely miss the heart, we end up in legalism. And on the inside, we're dead. And so I want to walk through a few examples with us today. But I want to start with this foundational principle. Every human being, that's us, is in need. Okay? So, if that's true, then you don't skip through life and occasionally encounter something you need, and then when you do that, you take it to God, He fixes it for you, then you get back on your merry way until you have another need. We are always in need. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. So I'll just give you some examples of some of the things that we need. We are always in need of a right relationship with God and others. Now, my relationship with God, he doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his love towards me. I am adopted. I am sealed. 
However, I will disengage from that relationship. I will ignore him. I will run the play and go through the motions and not spend time with him. And so, right, I'm always in need of stopping, right, and aligning my heart with his, and I'm always in need of a restored relationship with others. Now, if you're here today and you're like, man, I think every relationship in my life is good right now, just record this and then play it tomorrow because you'll need it. For the rest of us, if we'll stop and think, there is a relationship somewhere with tension or brokenness or hurt or wounds, and, and we're in need of restored relationship with God. Jesus says this, if you come to worship and you bring your gift of worship to the altar and you're about to set it down and just celebrate the goodness of God, but then you realize you've got a broken relationship with somebody, what does he tell you to do? He says, hey, tell you what, just leave your gift there. Go get right with that person and then come back and offer your gift of worship. We're always in need of a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. We're always in need of our sins being forgiven and our shame being removed. We're always in need of the wounds that we carry that are caused by the sins of others or just difficult circumstances we've encountered in this world. We're in need of healing. We talked about this last week in Ephesians 6. We're always in need of the strength of the Lord to help us stand against the schemes of the devil and to live out this life in this fallen world. There's just a few examples of some of the things that might be on your list of need today. And then the list goes on. I need to be reminded that I am his. I need to be reminded that he loves me. I need to be reminded of, and you can just keep going, right? And so the, the kind of, foundational principle here is I am always in need of God it's not like God meets my needs at salvation then I go on about my life and I'll let God know if something comes up which is unfortunately how so many of us relate to God isn't it thank you so much for that thing you did that was awesome I've got it from here I'll let you know when I get tired and I need you to take the wheel again Jesus but I've got it for now and so this idea is that you and I, we exist in need. What I want to look at, though, is the power of God's presence. And how when we encounter God's presence, I want us to see what happens. We could think about the garden itself, when Adam and Eve sinned and they felt shame and they went and hid. What were they hiding from? The presence of God. Like they just knew deep within their souls there's something about the presence of God that is powerful. The next chapter, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel and then he moves out east. Why does he move? He's running from something. What's he running from? The presence of God. You think about the nation of Israel in their wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years. And during that time, God gives a lot of good things to them. He gives them manna for food. He gives them water, comes out of a rock to quench their thirst. He protects them from their enemies. He divides a sea and allows them to cross over on dry land. He gives them his voice at times, the Ten Commandments. 
But what is the thing that God gives without fail every moment of every day? His presence. He said, here, I'm going to be with you. Here's how you'll know. I will lead you with a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. That's how you'll know where to go. And as long as you see that, you know you have my presence. And if you have my presence, you'll have enough to eat, you'll have enough to drink, you'll have provision and protection. You think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you know that story. Threatened their lives to be thrown in the fiery furnace if they wouldn't bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar. And they don't, and they're thrown in the fire. Does God put out the fire? He doesn't. And yet they're not burned up. And when they look into the fire, they see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they see one with them who looks like the Son of God. See, God didn't put out the fire in that situation, but he gave them his presence. I think about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. In Corinthians, he's writing about this torment he's feeling from the devil, this thorn in the flesh, and he cries out three times to God. Oh, God, please, I'm in need. Take this away. God, I am in need. Please, take this away. God, I am in need. Take this away. Does God take away the thorn in the flesh? No. God responds to Paul and says, Hey, Paul, my presence will be enough for you in this one. My grace will be sufficient for you and so just because we bring our need to the presence of God doesn't mean he always jumps to our beck and call and does the thing that we think we need but here's the promise of God I will never leave you nor forsake you and you can always have my presence you can always have my presence Even the great commission, go make disciples of the world, ends with a promise. What's the promise? And behold, I'm going to go with you. Even to the end of time, I will be with you. Ezekiel 44, verse 4. This was Ezekiel's experience. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So here Ezekiel is. He's at the temple. It's this place of worship. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And what happened? I fell on my face. We see the power of the Lord's presence. Even in Revelation 21, when we get to this final restoration of all things, where God is making all things new and all things right, you know what makes heaven so special? Revelation 21 describes it for us. Listen to this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, here's what makes heaven special. The dwelling place of God is with man. Why is that special? Because that's what took place in the garden. God is restoring that. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And oh, by the way, look at what he does with our needs. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have what? They have passed away. 
And so we see this power, this relentless power of God's presence available for his people. And just because we bring our needs to him doesn't mean he's going to do the thing we ask him to do. But whatever he does, listen to this, will be enough. His presence is enough. It's enough to sustain us, to heal us. And when we encounter the loving kindness of God, guess what happens? Our hearts erupt with gratitude and love and worship and obedience. I want to look at an example with you um, in just a minute. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, actually this is what was read earlier. If we look at this together, I want you to look for um, these things in this passage. Look for God's presence. Look for the need of Isaiah. Look for how God meets his need. And then let's look for his worship and his obedience. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And with two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who, was called, who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is one example of a human being being in the presence of God. And we can see so many things happening here related to worship, can't we? I mean, starting with the seraphim themselves, these these creatures, these angelic beings that it's hard to imagine what this thing looks like, yet we see this being worshiping God. Six wings, and we think about, well, what's the Where's the posture of the heart of this being? How is this worship? And we see him covering feet and covering eyes, and there's this sense of humility on the inside that's coming out on the outside. We see right thinking about God, identifying this this one who sits on the throne as holy, holy, holy. So even in the seraphim, we, we see this example of what worship looks like. And then Isaiah. Oh, was Isaiah in need? Oh, he was in need. And, and the evidence would say that he wasn't even aware of his need until he encountered the presence of the Lord. But what did he need? He needed his sins to be atoned for. 
He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now that I'm in the presence of the one who is holy, I can see myself more accurately. I can see all the people more accurately. My lips are unclean. My heart is unclean. I am undone in the presence of the Lord. Does God meet him in his needs? Absolutely. Symbolically, the seraphim takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips, symbolizing the cleansing from sin, the atonement for sin that only God himself can do for us. And God forgave Isaiah of his sin and cleansed him of his sin. And what happens out of that? God says, hey, I gotta send somebody. Anybody interested? Who will go for us? And what flows out of Isaiah's gratitude and his love for God is what? Worship and obedience. Just one example. I don't know about you, but that doesn't look like my Mondays. It'd be pretty cool. But this seems to be kind of a one-off experience for Isaiah. What does this look like on Monday? What does this look like when I'm going through the routine of my everyday life? How do I encounter the presence of God in a way that leads me to worship and obedience? I think of just practical examples. Think about um, the woman caught in adultery. This poor lady was caught in sin. She had a ton of shame. She was drugged from this place of sin by these religious leaders. Can you imagine? dragging this woman out into public her sin her shame on display for everybody did this woman have needs you better believe she did she had the same needs that isaiah had but she had more needs she needed to be protected from these guys why because what were they carrying you remember rocks not only were they dragging her sin and shame out into public display, but they were carrying rocks to stone her to death. So this woman in her need is drugged where? Into the presence of Jesus. Thank God. Thank God. The one safe place is the presence of Jesus. And Jesus steps in. And before he addresses her, he addresses them. And he steps in between this woman and her accusers with these rocks. He sees the need for this woman to be protected from these men. And he says, okay, whoever doesn't have any sin in his life, whoever doesn't have any need, you throw the first stone. And what do they do? They drop their rocks and they walk away. Now this isn't the end of the story, is it? Jesus now turns to the woman. He's met that need. He's protected her. He turns to her and her heart and her shame and her guilt. He says, hey, where are your condemners? Where are those men who condemned you? Like, hey, nobody, they've all left. And he says what to her? Neither do I condemn you. Because why? There was a deeper need she had to be set free from that sin and shame she was carrying. And with those simple words, neither do I condemn you. And then what does he call her to do? Go and sin no more. What a beautiful example. I think about Jesus and John 4 and this woman at the well. Another story where you've got this lady who's been carrying a lot of shame. 
Matter of fact, she's carrying so much shame that she would rather go to the well and draw water in the middle of the day when it's hot than show up in the cool of the morning when everybody else shows up. And so to hide and her shame and to avoid running into anybody, she comes in the middle of the day not expecting to see anybody. She's thinking, I'll be alone with my shame. This, this, this is really miserable, but at least nobody's going to see it. And she shows up at the well to draw water, but who does she meet there? Jesus. And she's actually a little caught off guard by his presence. She's like, wait a second, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, this shouldn't be happening. Not only that, I can tell, like she's going to call him a prophet, like I can tell you're a religious guy, I'm obviously not religious because I'm showing up in the middle of the day, this shouldn't be happening. Does Jesus turn his back on her and walk away and go, you know what, you're right, I'm not supposed to interact with, with unclean people. Does he turn his back on her? He gives her his presence. I'm not embarrassed to be here with you. Your shame does not embarrass me. Your, your past doesn't embarrass me. Here, I'll show you. He said, hey, why don't you go grab your, hus- your husband? And she's like, oh, gosh, here it comes. <sighs> Sir, I'm not married. He goes, I know. You've been married like five times, and the guy you're living with isn't even your husband. You see how he's just inviting that shame out into his presence? Oh, surely now this religious leader is going to use it against me and tell me how awful I am. And is that what Jesus does? No. He gives her more of his presence. I'm not going anywhere. You can bring it all. You can lay it all on the table with me. Your fear, your shame, your guilt, your past, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to give you more of myself. Then he engages her in a conversation about water, and she's a little confused, and he's like, hey, you know, can I have a drink? And she's like, ooh, are you? You're a Jew. You shouldn't be asking me for that. And he's like, no, you're right. You should actually be asking me for water. She's like, okay, now I'm really confused. How can I ask you for water if you don't even have a bucket? And how does he respond? He's like, hey, I'm actually here to offer you living water. She's like, wait, wait, wait a second. You see how Jesus is just bringing her needs to the surface? And he's saying, hey, I'm the only one who can quench that thirst, that that aching you feel on the inside, that longing for somebody to see you and not run from you, that longing to be accepted and loved. That's me. I'm living water. And when you drink from this well, it will never run dry. What does she say? Well, give me that. I want that. I want that water. And so Jesus and her began to talk about worship. She's like, I know you Jews worship there. Us Samaritans, we worship over here. And he's saying, hey, I'm telling you the truth. There's a time coming. We're going to all worship together in the same place. Why were they having this conversation? Her heart, she was wanting to do something with all this joy she felt, all this gratitude she felt towards Jesus. She wanted to do something with it. And then what does she do? You know, she becomes the first missionary to Samaria. She takes this this gospel that she barely understands back to her own people and tells everyone, come see the man who knows everything I did and yet he didn't run from me. And so Jesus comes, he stays with them two days and gives his presence and many more believe on Jesus because of her testimony 
is what John 4 says. You see how that works? A lot of us here today, just like Isaiah and just like this woman at the well, we don't even know what we need. We've been ignoring what we've needed for so long and shoving it down and telling ourselves, God doesn't want to be bothered with me. I'll just be a nuisance. I've already asked for help once. I'm pretty sure I've already used that card and I haven't done enough good things to get a new card and God doesn't want to hear from me. And you've been doing that so long, you aren't even aware of what you need. Here's the good news. That's okay. God will show you what you need. Others of us, like the woman caught in adultery, we're, we're coming into church and we've got one thing on our mind. I know I need this. Need this thing to be fixed. Feels really icky. And Jesus is like, yeah, I can fix that need. And guess what? I can fix needs that you don't even know you have. I can stand between you and your accusers. And I can also free up that shame thing going on inside of you. That condemnation you feel, I can fix that. The same way I did for Isaiah. The same way I did for the woman at the well. I can do it for you. I want to look at this slide again. I don't know if this is the best example of what it needs to look like. I feel like all these should just be jumbled up like spaghetti. Because again, it's not a recipe for getting God to do what we want him to do. It's just a description of how we see God meeting people in need with his presence. And out of that comes these hearts, postured with gratitude and affection and love, ready to worship and ready to obey. I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, a preacher in the 1800s. On February the 2nd, 1873, he preached a sermon, always and for all things. And here is a quote from his sermon. He who would serve God must begin by praising God. Obedience begins where? Worship. For a grateful heart is the, the mainspring of obedience. We must offer the salt of gratitude with the sacrifice of obedience. Our lives should be anointed with the precious oil of thankfulness. As soldiers march to music, so while we walk in the paths of righteousness, we should keep step to the notes of thanksgiving. Larks sing as they mount so should we magnify the Lord for his mercies while we are winging our way to heaven. This integration between gratitude and worship and obedience. A couple things. If you're here today and you have not been a part of a, of a church experience where there was enough room for you to be needy, okay, I just want you to know I'm really sad about that. Jesus is not embarrassed of your needs. And there's enough room in here for you to bring those needs to the Lord. If you're here today and your religious experience, your church experience is all about obedience, 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 just be obedient. First of all, I want you to know I'm really sad, a little bit angry that that was your experience. God is calling you to obedience. He is calling you to worship. But understand this, he is willing to meet you where you're at. 
So, what do you do when you aren't really at the place of worship? What do you do when you're, when you're at the place, like, I know what I should do. Everybody's stinging, standing and singing these songs. The guy up on stage is praying, but my heart is a long ways away. What do you do? You ask yourself one question. What do I need from the Lord right now? What do I need? Church, what do you need? If you were struggling to worship with the rest of the bodies today, don't, I want you to feel shame about that. I want to invite you to bring that out in the open and just ask you this, what do you need? What's going on on the inside? Where do you need God to meet you? Bring that need to his presence. And here's the thing, he'll actually take care of the rest. Let's end here. Worship happens when our adoration, so think about love and affection and gratitude, when our adoration and our profound reverence towards God aligns with right thoughts about God, he is holy, he is kind, and is expressed in obedient actions towards God. When all three of these things align, we're worshiping. When the Lord gives us his presence, it exposes our neediness, and we either run and hide, or we run towards him. And when we do that, when we go towards him, he responds with kindness, patience, long-suffering, and love and that fills our hearts with listen gratitude and worship that we can't contain worship that's going to spill out whether we want it to or not joy and excitement for how good God is and what God has done that we cannot contain it worship isn't something that we conjure up in our own strength does not pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just do it. It's a heart posture that comes out of experiencing God and his kindness and his holiness and his goodness when he meets us in the midst of our deepest needs. That's where worship comes from. So worship isn't something that we do when we just stand to sing. If the words on your lips are not matching the posture of your heart, it's not worship. One last Bible verse to reflect on and ask some questions. Romans 12, verse 1 says this, that in view of God's mercy, we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord, and this is the spiritual act of worship. And I love that simple expression. In view of what? God's mercy. In view of God meeting you where you're at and meeting your deepest needs, out of that comes these, these lives of sacrifice and obedience towards him, and this is our spiritual act of worship. We're gonna spend the remainder of this series talking about worship in everyday life, and we probably won't even get around to the songs that we sing. There's so much other ground we're gonna cover together. As we wrap up today, I'm just gonna ask you some, some questions to think about your neediness before the Lord today. When was the last time that you would describe your heart as being filled with worship? Where it's like oozing out and splashing out and you just can't contain it. 
When was the last time you felt overwhelmed in a good way with your heart being filled with worship? And maybe this is a better question. When was the last time you experienced the Lord's presence? When you were 14 at summer camp 30 years ago is not good enough. It's a great start, but it's not enough. Like the same way that the Lord met you then, he wants to meet you like right now in your seat in this space right here. When was the last time you cried out to the Lord to restore your relationship with him? When was the last time you cried out to the Lord to restore a relationship with somebody else? Like, God, I need your help here. When was the last time you cried out for the Lord's forgiveness? Maybe, like so many others, myself included, and the woman of the well, you're afraid to bring your sin before the Lord, and so you're hiding it. When was the last time you just cried out and said, hey, can I just bring you this mess? Will you forgive me for this? You, you made this promise in the Bible, and like I really want to trust it, that you said if I'll confess this, you'll forgive. If it's been a while, maybe that's what you need to do today. When was the last time you cried out to the Lord for healing from the wounds that you've encountered, like either from others or from just circumstances? When was the last time you cried out, oh God, heal me, heal this pain, heal this hurt, heal this loneliness, heal this brokenness? When was the last time that you cried out for the Lord's strength like we talked about in Ephesians 6 last week? We stand against the schemes of the devil. How? By standing in the strength the Lord provides. When was the last time you cried out, God, I need your strength. I need your strength to make it through today. I need your strength to do this thing I'm about to get paid to do or this other thing I'm not being paid to do, to be a parent, to be a friend. Like, I need your strength here, God, to be a spouse. The expectations of the world are too much. Oh, Lord, I need you. When was the last time you cried out for his strength? And if it's been a while, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe that's what you need to do. If you're here today and you have never called on the name of the Lord, like we've been painting a picture for you on how good God is and how relentless his, his love is for you. And I just want you to know, if you've never cried out, you've never called on the name of the Lord, here's the promise from the Bible. Romans 10 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved if that's you i'm going to invite you to do that today to call on his name if you want somebody to pray with you or talk with you about that um, our prayer partners will be available and our elders will be out in the commons will be available as well let's pray together and i really want you to think about what you need today and whether or not you're willing to bring that need before the lord and experience his presence let's pray together father thank you for our time together God, thank you for this reminder that, Father, your presence is available to us. That, Father, you aren't embarrassed or put off or irritated when we come to you as your children and we bring our needs. Father, we don't want to be the people that you described in Isaiah who just honor you with lip service. Like, like whitewashed tombs. We look good on the outside, but we're dead on the inside. God, we don't want to be like that. 
We also don't want to be a people who just ring the bell of neediness and never receive what you have for us and never move towards gratitude and affection and love and worship. So Father, we're asking you, just like this woman caught in adultery, Father, as we step into the light today, you would meet us where we are and you would give us your presence. Father, may you be honored and lifted up as we sing. May you be worshiped and adored in our hearts and with our minds, with our strength, with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.